You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome, listeners. Are we renegades or what? This homelessness crisis has got me fired up again this week, seeing just how one-eyed... some of the analysis going on in the Herald Sun is it's as if uh, there's no consideration of this record housing bubble been running for nigh on 16 odd years uh, ever since well actually let's update that to uh, good old 17 years uh, since the axing of the capital gains tax the halving of that on uh, uh, those lucky enough to own investment properties basically doubled their profitability and ever since then people such as Harry Triggerboff's wealth has skyrocketed he's now the wealthiest man in Australia None of that has anything to do with uh, people who cannot find somewhere to live. It's just uh, so frustrating that uh, so many people in this bright city, supposedly, are reading the Herald Sun, being whacked over the head by these shots of people who pretty well have nowhere to go and are protesting about the state of affordability. With that in mind, let's switch over to today's interview. Listeners, I welcome to the show Dr. Meg Mundell, who's a social researcher and former deputy editor of The Big Issue. She had an article in the Fairfax Press over the last week called Homeless Law is Misguided, Dangerous and Doomed to Fail. Meg, welcome to the show. Uh, what really pressed your buttons in terms of uh, putting pen to paper on this crucial issue? Well, I found it really alarming that our Lord Mayor... Robert Doyle had done this um, very sudden backflip and um, seemed to be proposing to outlaw rough sleeping in, in, on Melbourne streets, uh, which was it's just a completely bizarre and ridiculous and very a dangerous proposition. I was also really disturbed by the remarks made by our Chief Police Commissioner, Graham Ashton, who you would think would be a fairly intelligent man given his position and his background who made the bizarre claim that the the people camping, so-called camping along Flinders Street outside the station there, are pretending to be homeless in order to shake down uh, our tennis tourists for money. Um, He described their presence as being disgusting and a very ugly sight. And he said there are no reasons people should be homeless. There's more than enough beds and accommodation for people to access. And I just that just made me wonder if perhaps Mr Ashton was living in a parallel universe. So, yeah, this got me pretty riled up, as it did with um, researchers in this area, um, experts in this area, the homeless services. So that's why I wrote the piece. It was almost as if the Herald Sun was looking for a lead story. They had this homeless situation on the front page of their paper for a couple of days running and uh, really using the same sort of inflammatory strategies that we've seen uh, through various social actions, whether that be back at the Stolen Wealth Games or more recently with the Gold Street uh, mm. a homeless housing protest group that was uh, up and running in Collingwood for most of last year. Yes, that particular newspaper has, it's, this is not new uh, for them. They have um, been long um, involved in campaigns to, to vilify and um, criticise 
and demean people who are homeless, particularly people who are visibly homeless. So it's a very peculiar and very sort of hate-filled and quite ignorant position to take because they're, they're not really giving any credence to the underlying problems and issues that, that cause homelessness. You know, they do a lot of damage. These kind of tabloid media campaigns do a lot of damage and have real impacts on people's lives. You know, make them feel that they are hated, they are not human, they are not valued. So, yeah, it's, um, I don't know what the motivation is, but they do devote a lot of time and energy to this kind of um, unsubstantiated rubbish. And when you look at some of the research that's going on in terms of homelessness, there's been quite a bit looking at the cost of uh, state government funded services and uh, comparing that to uh, the cost of enforcing these homeless policies? Well, if this, this law, this proposed law, and I should say we don't know what it would look like yet, and, and the Lord Mayor has again actually backed away from his earlier statements and seems to be softening a little bit. We don't know exactly what they would look like. But if they were, if... If the police were to start enforcing a new law whereby rough sleepers could be fined for the offence of of sleeping or sitting on the street, as has happened in LA, what we would see is a vast diversion of police resources and court resources to sort of chasing people for fines that they simply cannot pay. It would really clog up the court systems, it would waste police time and resources, and it would end up being, you know, really expensive in the long run. It doesn't make any sense economically or socially or morally. And, and that's certainly true uh, when looking at the cost of permanent supportive housing. Uh, uh, that's something in the vicinity of $35,000 a year versus uh, the state government funded services that homeless people use is uh, up around the the $50,000 mark so there is an economic argument to have a more conciliatory tone uh, rather than this situation where it's illegal now for uh, people trying to earn a dollar to uh, to even squeegee to clean uh, car windows as uh, people are waiting in in traffic jams at the lights yeah, right. Well, these, these kind of punitive policies, they don't actually do anyone any favours. You know, if you land somebody with a vast number of fines that accumulate over time, they don't get the correspondence regarding those fines because they don't have a letterbox. They miss their court dates. The fines escalate. You know, there's a potential for them to be doing jail time for that. Now, jails are not cheap to run. They're also full. So it's a very short-sighted idea, quite apart from the, you know, the, the impacts on the person of, of being criminalised like that. You know, and the longer you spend on the, on the street, the more your health tends to deteriorate as well. So down the track, you're going to have people with, you know, extreme and chronic health problems that could have been addressed if they had been able to access a program such as the Street to Home program, um, which has been piloted in Melbourne, which has proven to be really successful in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, where they targeted the most vulnerable people, the rough sleepers who really you know, are chronically homeless. And it's overseen by Launch Housing with the help of the Royal District Nursing Service Homeless Persons Program. And the Salvos are also involved. So they provide actual housing and plus intensive ongoing support and health services for those people so they can get back on their feet and stay on their feet. You know, then you're not having people turn up in the the um, emergency room 
which is also they're also full. Launch housing, of course, at the at I think it was about January three or four. There was a big article talking about how a Melbourne uh, philanthropic family had donated four million dollars to build housing for the homeless on uh, vacant land in the inner west. And of course, uh, we here on the Renegade Economists have been pushing for the uh, analysis of the level of speculative vacancies in Melbourne uh, that property speculators uh, buy and basically sit on and uh, over the last year probably made some seventy dollars to $80,000 without having to lift a finger. But uh, these people are the, are the ones who are protected, if you like, by the system. Uh, the, it's not analysed officially by government. And uh, we're at this scenario now where it's just so blatantly obvious that uh, the Herald Sun, if you like, has fought back against all that groundswell towards more affordable housing, towards uh, homeless services with this uh, lurid campaign they've been running and the homeless people uh, are stuck in the middle and it's almost as if property speculators have greater rights than uh, the homeless. Oh, they absolutely, absolutely they do. Um, um, you know, they're not, they're not being shamed um, and denigrated, um, you know, for what's essentially, you know, I guess you could call it greed, you could call it making money, you could call it speculation. But these guys, the, 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 the Harris brothers, who've put in this $4 million donation to build these transportable townhouses on these blocks of empty Vic Roads land in Footscray and Maidstone, these guys deserve a huge hug. They deserve like, to be held up as examples of how the business community and how wealthy people can actually do something worthwhile in the world. Instead of just buying up properties, leaving them empty, sitting on their hands and just making obscene amounts of money. They're doing, you know, they're doing something. They're really putting their money where their mouth is. And I think they're really awesome and we want to see more of that. We want to see less of the, of the speculation and the laws that support that kind of speculation. Meg Mundell, what can we take from this experience? How can we as a community move forward? OK, we need more public housing stock. We need to encourage our leaders to you know, invest in this. We have a national shortage of affordable housing. That's both private rentals and social or public housing. We need to buy more stock now. Stop leaving buildings empty. We need to increase the funding to pilot programs like the one run by Launch Housing, the Street to Home program. And we need to hold up corporate people who uh, support these disadvantaged people like these businessmen, Brad and Jeff Harris. We need to really hold them up as actual heroes in our community. We also need to remember that these people who are sleeping rough and all the hidden people who are also homeless, you don't see them on the streets, they're in like temporary accommodation. They're real people, that could be us. We're only a few paychecks away from you know our own lives unravelling most of us and we need to have empathy and we need to be, we need to actually remember that we're not talking about vermin, we're not talking about garbage, we're talking about actual human beings, real people with potential and feelings and connections and families, and to remember that they matter just as much as we do. And that was Meg Mundell, social researcher, and uh, one of the many who are concerned about the drastic escalation in the inequity of life on planet Earth. And uh, she's there talking about the sort of preventative policies we need 
not the retributional type uh, aim that uh, the right uh, keep taking at uh, the less fortunate. And as Meg rightly pointed out, there were only uh, a paycheck or two ourselves away from homelessness, especially now where people are taking out 40-year mortgages and on average borrowing more than $300,000 just to get in their first home. During the week, uh, we've had a change up in New South Wales. They've got a new premier uh, who has come out in uh, and surprised a few by saying, look, housing affordability is my number one priority. Certainly got my attention. And then very quickly, she ruled out the uh, potential of replacing stamp duties, which is a real barrier to people getting into housing. You've got to save up even more money to be able to pay for your stamp duty on top of uh, the 300,000 borrowing, probably 700,000 you really need these days to buy a house in Melbourne. It's uh, upwards to a million in Sydney and beyond. So uh, Australia was at two, three cities, I think, in the top 10 most unaffordable uh, locations to live on the entire planet, according to uh, a report out this week. And of course, the New South Wales Premier, she said, look, it's all about the supply side. That's what I need to do, uh, free up the supply. And uh, when you look into that, if you've been a regular listener to the show, you will know that supply side is a, a code word for rezoning, which uh, delivers uh, uh, windfall gains via the bureaucrat's golden pen tick. Uh, that's where the big, big dollars are made in uh, turning a vacant block of land that the statistics have probably ignored for the last decade and uh, giving it the potential to build uh, 40, 50 apartments on it. All of a sudden that becomes worth 20 to $30 million. My uh, taxi driver during the week had no idea this is what's going on and that is our great challenge, this low level of economic literacy out there. Everyone wants to be wealthy, but so few care about the terms of economic engagement. And those terms are ratcheting up because uh, we have uh, Airbnb sweeping through uh, the the land uh, in Melbourne. There's some 12,000 properties listed uh, uh, for rent, of which 60% are dedicated for Airbnb only. They do not uh, rent out or it's not part of a home or anything like that. In Sydney, there's 24,000 homes in total and it's a similar 60% that's dedicated where uh, some landlords uh, own uh, 5, 6, 10, 12 type properties. And of course, uh, it seems like the pressure is going to build on uh, both uh, New South Wales and Victoria, like all global cities, that uh, the role of Airbnb is actually reducing the supply of housing and assisting this never-ending property bubble. All right, over to uh, the other big issue of the week. And of course, uh, that was uh, big, bad Donald Trump. And uh, it's just infuriating that he thinks he can get away with saying uh, I'm here for the people I'm here to represent you the 99% his uh, big claim to fame is jobs creation via infrastructure which as you know is akin to developer welfare not corporate welfare but property developer welfare uh, let alone all the construction uh, monopolies who get in there and charge uh, uh, akin to those uh, golden toilet seats that happen in the military-industrial complex. Well, now in uh, this infrastructure developer complex uh, uh, that is best framed by Michael Hudson and his call of the, the fire sector of finance, insurance and real estate, well, that's what Donald Trump is talking about. 
He's uh, threatening unions. He's bustling and hustling his way uh, over and above uh, everyday people. Let's have a listen to this one. How we? This is an Irish uh, MP talking in uh, Parliament there. So let's have a listen to this. How we are supposed to deal with this monster who's just been elected president of America. America has just selected the fascist and the best thing that good people in Ireland can do is to ring him up and ask him if it's okay to still bring the shamrock on St. Patrick's Day. I'm embarrassed by the reaction of the Irish government to what's happened in America. Can the government not understand what's happening? We are at an ugly international crossroads. What's happening in Britain is appalling. What's happening across Europe is appalling. It has echoes from the 1930s. And America, the most powerful country in the world, has just elected a fascist. And the best you can come out with from government spokesperson is, well, we have to talk about foreign direct investment. We have to be conscious of of American investments in Ireland. There are 50,000 Irish people illegal in America who I'm quite sure are fearful of their futures. When are we going to have the moral courage to speak in terms other than economy all the time and to realise what is happening? I am, fr- I am frightened. I am absolutely frightened for what's happening to this world and what's happening to our inability to stand up for them. I want to ask you, Leader, to ask the Minister for Foreign Affairs into this House and to ask him how we are supposed to deal with this monster who's just been elected president of America. Because I don't think any of us in years to come should look back at this period and not say that we did everything in our power to call out for what it is. Good to see some of uh, the public uh, interest being represented rather vigorously there. That is what's needed because uh, it's just harrowing uh, what is happening overseas. I'm going to play a little bit of this interview from the Real News Network. Welcome to the Real News Network. I'm Justin Noor in Baltimore. During President-elect Trump's campaign, he promised to take on banks like Goldman Sachs for ruining the lives of hardworking Americans. Here's a clip. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. Well, Trump has chosen former Goldman banker Stephen Munchen and billionaire equity investor Wilbur Ross to lead the Treasury and Commerce Departments. On Wednesday, they said the incoming administration would make tax reform and trade pact overhauls top priorities as they seek a sustained pace of economic growth. Munchen also signaled a desire to remove U.S. mortgage finance companies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from government ownership, a move that could have wide-ranging ramifications for how Americans pay for their homes. Well, now joining us to discuss this and more from Kansas City, Missouri, is Bill Black. Bill is an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's a white-collar criminologist, a former financial regulator, and the author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. And, of course, he's a regular contributor to The Real News. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. Thank you. So, Bill, as we all know, Trump had promised to drain the swamp. Let's start with Munchen. He spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs. 
And what's not been widely reported is that he's known as the foreclosure king for heading the bank IndyMac when it kicked tens of thousands of people out of their homes. What can you tell us about him? So he's a second-generation Goldman Sachs. Um, so uh, you had a choice in the election between Hillary Clinton, uh, who had incredibly close uh, ties to Goldman Sachs, or Donald Trump, who promised to, that that would end, and uh, his first major act <laughs> is to uh, appoint a top Goldman Sachs uh, person and is uh, a, you know interviewing. Uh, the managing director uh, as well, according to news reports. So uh, yet another campaign province that didn't uh, survive 10 days after an election. And Munchen and Ross also criticized the financial reform legislation known as Dodd-Frank passed after the financial crisis. They said it's too complicated and cuts back lending. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported that regional banks in particular have been lobbying for relief from Dodd-Frank. And uh, Munchen said, that's the engine of growth for small and medium-sized businesses. How do you respond to that? Well, first, it, of course, hasn't been much of an engine uh, for growth, but that is the common rhetoric. Uh, what uh, they failed to mention, of course, was that the Republican platform uh, called for the return of Glass-Steagall. And Munchen's, uh, one of his first initiatives, he said, was to get rid of the only surviving port, portion uh, along the lines of Glass-Steagall, dividing um, banks, trying to keep them out of uh, uh, these uh, speculative derivatives uh, through the so-called Volcker Rule. So the Volcker Rule is sort of Glass-Steagall light. And uh, again, the Republican platform says return Glass-Steagall heavy. Uh, instead, uh, well, that's another one of those campaign things that are uh, not going to happen. They're going to go exactly the opposite direction, and they say it's a top priority to get rid of the last remnants of Glass-Steagall philosophy. And so um, talk a little bit about um, the role that Munchen played in the foreclosure crisis um, and, and the financial crisis as well. Um, when he was the head of IndyMac, it kicked something like 35,000 people out of their homes. It foreclosed on them. Um, some of these were reverse foreclosures. You know, he's going to be one of the most powerful people in Donald Trump's administration now and, and you know, guiding a lot of the policy. And as we know, um, going to be trying to get rid of some of this regulation that came out of that. Right. And this would be another one of those promises uh, and such. And so uh, these... Uh, key appointees uh, for Commerce and Treasury are folks that have uh, worked uh, closely in the past uh, with the Paulsons of the world and the George Soros of the world, uh, who uh, is the great demon, according to uh, Trump. But these are allies of uh, Soros. Um, so IndyMac was one of the most notorious fraudulent lenders in America. It specialized in making liar's loans. And again, I want to emphasize uh, that there's testimony in front of the Federal Reserve uh, by the top attorney generals, state attorney generals, who investigated these kinds of frauds. 
and they said that overwhelmingly the frauds came uh, from the lenders as opposed to the borrowers. So, and the incidence of fraud in liars' loans, according to the industry's own anti-fraud experts, was 90%. So what did these um, Goldman Sachs decide to do? Well, create a fund uh, to buy this most notorious fraudulent entity. And did they do it so they could uh, provide uh, recompense to the victims of the fraud? The borrowers? No, of course not. They did it so that they could start this aggressive wave of foreclosing on the fraudulently originated loans, double victimizing uh, the people that uh, took out these uh, loans. Um, and so they are probably the most notorious foreclosure uh, in uh, the United States, and their complaints saying that they did this disproportionately with regard to blacks and Latinos, but that would also follow uh, naturally from being a specialist in liar's loans uh, because they frequently, particularly in the last couple of years, 2006 and the first half of 2007, uh, deliberately targeted blacks and Latinos for those kinds of loans fraud. That was Bill Black, a colleague of uh, Professor Michael Hudson at the University of Missouri, Kansas, talking on the Real News Network about uh, just how much of a control uh, uh, Goldman Sachs has over U.S. democratic process. Uh, thankfully, uh, the ties aren't so direct here in Australia, but uh, I'm sure there's going to be more revealed uh, with the role of property influencing democracy at every level of government from local to state to federal. And uh, just absolutely shocking to see what's happening in America with uh, Betty DeVos, the pro charterist, a private school, anti-public school in charge of the education department, a climate denier in charge of the EPA, and shockingly just today found out that uh, a lobbyist for Verizon who uh, infamously barely ever pay a tax, uh, big uh, lobbyist for fighting net neutrality and uh, trying to push this two-speed uh, internet where uh, those who are already established, the Googles, the Facebooks, will be able to pay a premium price for their customers to have fast access to their websites but then any other up-and-comers will be in the slow lane and will be fairly well locked out of being able to compete in the information uh, superhighway and that's the sort of practice we've got when it comes to every level of uh, economic activity these days whether it's trying to find some land to grow some food on let alone have some time to grow some food on it uh, being able to afford water being able to afford buying uh, electricity uh, right up into uh, being able to afford decent organic foods and and beyond uh, into keeping a roof over our head nearly every aspect of life on earth has been privatized and quantified and I just am still struggling to to deal with the fact you've heard me talk about Serco running Victoria's parks and gardens with the tagline on all their vehicles bringing service to life those cheeky devils well to hear now that Halliburton's uh, division or KBR uh, big uh, winners in the uh, Iraq war uh, well they are the ones who are in charge of tree plantations in uh, Adelaide I'm looking for more examples along those lines because we have to look at how 30 years of privatization is affecting the cost base of the economy. 
we can we can go limp-wristed like Naomi Klein today. She's out talking about the need for regulation. Sure, that's something, but we need a more thorough analysis, Naomi. Get rid of this tired old left analysis. We need to be looking at monopoly rents, unearned incomes and the like because that's where the big dollars are made. That's where uh, uh, this wealth gap is coming from and I'm just happy to see that there's there's good uh, de- democratic uh, elements within government here in Australia still left. If anyone is passionate about land value capture and sharing this money from infrastructure, I please uh, check out the show notes on earthsharing.org.au. I'm going to put a link up to a discussion paper that our organisation could have well written this uh, this whole debate about sharing the profits from infrastructure development has really moved ahead. Let's see how that plays out in the future, though, by the time the lobbyists have got their, their snouts in the trough. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening to the beloved 3CR Airwaves and supporting all of the, the good uh, fight back. Uh, I feel like we're part of the resistance here and it's great to see that here and there there are signs of uh, the public interest still being represented.